Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 153, February 19th to February 25th, 1864. Last week, we talked about action in Oklahoma with Middle Boggy Depot. We revisited the submarine warfare with the first successful combat usage of a submarine in history. When you think about the Civil War, hopefully you'll be able to think about some of the naval innovations that have resulted from the conflict. Not only did we have submarines, but we also have the first ironclad on ironclad action. This week, we will spend time talking about the Battle of Alusti in Florida. First, though, let's talk about action in Georgia. Of course, before we do that, we need to talk about our Patreon content. And we had a statistical analysis here in January that just kind of ran down some figures, casualty numbers, took a look at maybe some of the effectiveness of certain generals and battles. And if that sounds like something that would interest you, obviously, that's posted. We did a movie review, The Red Badge of Courage, shortly thereafter uh, with Audie Murphy. And obviously, The Red Badge of Courage is also a novel, Stephen Crane novel. That's what the movie was based on. And then as we close out February, again into the end of February here, we'll be doing more Patreon content with our back-to-back movie review kind of comparison of The Beguiled. So a little bit of a different look in some of the Patreon items that we've been doing here. And if any of that sounds like it would interest you, there is a link in the show description. And of course, those proceeds do go toward the general upkeep of the show. So when we last left off the Confederate forces in Georgia, they had been released from their leadership from Bragg. Joseph Johnson has taken over for the North Carolinian. It's actually kind of interesting because Joseph Johnson had been trying to avoid that scenario. He doesn't want to take over for Bragg. It's part of the rationale as to why he doesn't replace him previous. With the Meridian campaign unfolding, it seemed like that front was quiet so there would be shuffling, as the Confederates often did. If you remember, Polk had withdrawn into Alabama, giving up Mississippi, but it was still important to stabilize the situation. Grant would realize that if reinforcement is being sent over to Polk, then the forces defending the line before Thomas would be weakened. If that shell was cracked, then the road could be open to the key city of Atlanta. It's one of the things that Grant does particularly well as he realizes that The Confederacy is shifting forces around constantly. They're trying to make sure they can kind of outgun the Union Army somewhere. They did it at Chickamauga, um, and it's kind of a shell game with them. So he wants to make sure to try to neutralize that, and he's taking this into the overall strategy that we're going to see here later as we get into 1864. Thomas would move forward with 25,000 men divided into three columns. They would start skirmishing with Johnson around Dalton, Georgia. Unfortunately for the Union troops, it appeared that Johnson was still able to wage a successful defensive campaign. Johnson, of course, is known for his defensive actions as opposed to maybe some of his offensive actions, even though we had Seven Pines with pretty good idea there in the peninsula right before the Seven Days. After Thomas sustained a handful of casualties and several days of skirmishing, which maybe it amounted to 300 in total, 
he'd withdraw back into winter quarters. Troops intended for Polk would move back to Johnson. This front, much like with the Eastern Theater or the main theater of the war, would be quiet once again. We have an account from the winter quarters at Dalton, and this is going to be much in the same way that we had an account from winter quarters there at Morton's Ford. We're doing kind of a repeat exercise. This is another look into what the soldiers talked about and wrote home about. Our brigade, General John K. Jackson's Major General H.T. Walker's division, Lieutenant General William Hardy's corps, was encamped about two miles east of Dalton on a slightly elevated plateau, sloping generally in every direction, thus affording good drainage. Our cabins were built of split logs, the cracks being chinked during the severest weather with red clay, thus making a very comfortable house indeed. An ample chimney was constructed of sticks, chinked in the same manner as the house, and when the fireplace was piled up with wood and set going, we had as comfortable quarters as to warmth as one could wish. Our bedstands were four posts, with in and side pieces nailed to them, and boards were placed so as to give us room to fill with straw, and over this our quilts and blankets were spread. I occupied a cabin with my brother Charlie, who was adjacent of the Sharpshooters, 2nd Georgia Battalion. We were as comfortable as the proverbial bug in a rug. Our mess was composed of Adjutant Roberts, Color Sergeant William Mullerin, Sergeants Marn V. Calvin, and Henry Miller, Charlie Cheeseborough, and Mike Roulette, and Privates Tommy Brunow, Jimmy Robertson, and myself. Being a very large mess, our ration came in a good-sized chunk, especially beef. Sergeant Miller was an excellent cook, and he could bake our roast, our ration of rum, to a turn, and believe me, it was good. At times we had potatoes, which were powerful good, with the savory gravy he made. Cornbread was our standby in that line. This was baked in a big old Dutch oven, about 14 inches in diameter, two bakings of three pounds each being required at each of our three meals per day. He used liberally of the little Mexican red peppers for seasoning, which was a most healthy tonic for us. Just here, I shall digress to say that we passed through Dalton in October 1864 on our way into Tennessee. The previous winter's camps could be located by the Sea of Pepper Plants, full of peppers that covered the country from the seed that had fallen on the ground. Occasionally, bacon with some kind of green vegetable varied our bill of fare. We ordered a five-gallon keg of Georgia cane syrup. It cost us only $300, which went splendidly with our cornbread for dessert. I can now hear Billy Mullerin say, please pass me those molasses. He was a noble fellow, as true as steel. In fact, you could hardly get a nobler band together than our mess at Dalton was. Martin Calvin was correspondent for one of the Augusta papers, and for many years after the war, he represented Richmond County, Georgia, in the legislature. He and I are the only survivors of that mess, and I know of but two other members of our company that are living. They are Captain George F. Lambeck and W.H. Hendricks of Augusta, Georgia. I met these two at the reunion in Washington in June 1917. It had been 53 years since I saw Hendricks as he was leaving the field in front of Kennesaw Mountain near Marietta, Georgia. Sunday, June 19, 1864, with blood streaming down his neck, 
from a wound in the head. Except that he was older and grayer, he had not changed since I last saw him. In this skirmish, Sergeant Miller also received a severe wound in the leg, and I never saw him again after he was taken from the field. He died several years ago. Not long after I joined the command at Dalton, I was ordered to Brigade Headquarters to Assistant Captain S.A. Moreau, Adjutant General, in the clerical work of his office. This operated to relieve me of all camp duty. I then had done only one or two hours of guard duty. It came in mighty handy during the hard winter in January and February. Our life in camp had its pleasant side, singing being the chief feature. I had a high, clear falsetto voice, and knowing all the popular songs of the day, I was constituted leader of the gang. Buchanan, old dear Buck, one of our musicians, had a sweet tenor. My dear friend Griff had a lovely singing voice, and my brother Charlie held up the bass end of the line. One of our songs was Annie Darling. So this gives us a pretty good idea into another letter from home and what exactly the soldiers write about. Not really a letter from home as much as a memoir, kind of. He's writing this after the war, obviously, this soldier. And he mentions remembering all these instances of, like, say, food and you know, singing, right? So there's not really a whole lot of mentions of combat sometimes in these letters. And we talked about this with Morton's Ford and that letter and that there was some action and he kind of just glosses over that and, and goes on to other things. So it is kind of interesting to see what the soldiers remember from the war and what they write about afterwards. And it is pretty humorous how there were all these pepper plants and, you know, at least from what he was describing, right? It's actually sounded like it was pretty good, pretty good food. So if you were hungry, uh, I, uh, I do apologize. Hopefully you get something to eat here. So this week, we will outline the largest battle in the state of Florida. We talked about Truman Seymour and his contingent heading toward Lake City. Abraham Lincoln would outline the goals of the campaign in a letter. I understand an effort is being made by some worthy gentleman to reconstruct a loyal state government in Florida. Florida is in your department, and it is unlikely that you may be there in person. I have given Mr. Hay a commission of major and sent him to you with some blank books and other blanks to aid in the reconstruction. He will explain as to the manner of using the blanks and also my general views on the subject. It is desirable for all to cooperate, but if irreconcilable differences of opinion shall arise, you are master. I wish the thing done in the most speedy way possible so that when done, it will be within the range of the late proclamation on the subject. The detail labor, of course, will have to be done by others, but I shall be greatly obliged if you will give it such general supervision as you can find convenient with your more strictly military duties. Yours very truly, Abraham Lincoln. So, of course, here we have Abraham Lincoln talking about how they need to make up a loyal government in the state, and this is the goal for many other states that are currently in the South, right? He wants to make sure there are state governments. This is all kind of building toward not only discrediting the Confederacy, but also building toward his re-election attempt uh, that's coming up here in November of 1864. So obviously these are going to be high priority items and he's going to task Truman Seymour with getting this done. Let's talk about the makeup of the commands first. We mentioned Joseph Finnegan commanding for the Confederates. He would have a brigade of mostly Georgians under Alfred Colquitt. 
Colquitt is a name that we have heard before, importantly, a veteran officer. He would have an additional brigade under Colonel George Harrison, which contains some mixed units in Carraway Smith's Cavalry Command. Truman Seymour would have several brigades, which were on the smaller side. Colonel William Barton commanded three New York regiments. Joseph Hawley, who would go on to become Governor of Connecticut, would command the 7th Connecticut, the 7th New Hampshire, and the 8th United States Colored Troops. James Montgomery, who we have talked about before, commanded the 35th United States Colored Troops, which were formerly the 1st South Carolina, and we talked about them as well, and of course, the 54th Massachusetts. Guy Henry would be in charge of the cavalry. After the war, he would receive the Medal of Honor for his service during the Battle of the Rosebud against Native Americans. All in all, the Federals had a slight numerical advantage, but both sides would have approximately 5,000 men. The Confederates were determined to meet the enemy before they could get to Lake City. Therefore, they would make a stand east of that location. Sam Jones will describe the action at Alusti. He will also have some rebuttals on the part of General at the time, Colonel Joseph Hawley. Jones will describe the battlefield pretty well, though. The country along the railroad from the Suwannee River eastward is low and flat, without streams to delay the march of an army, and with open pine forest unobstructed by growth. The only natural features which could serve any purposes of defense were the lakes and ponds scattered over the area. The position at Ocean Pond offered these advantages. From the 13th to the 20th, some defensive works were begun, but little progress was made toward completing them. On a line extending from Ocean Pond on the left, a sheet of water of about 4 miles in length by from 2 to 2 and a half miles in width to another pond about 2 miles long on the right and to the south of the railroad. A short distance in front and to the left was a good pond, and in front of the right, a bay or jungle passable only within 200 yards to the right or south of the railroad. The position possessed strength provided the enemy would attack it directly from front, but could be readily turned. So Sam Jones describes a pretty good battlefield, I guess we could say, right? There are positions in which you can anchor your line upon with water, right? There's impassable areas, so that's going to be good if you're setting up for a defensive action, right? But he does mention that you could probably turn the position, so that's not so good. All was not good with the Union command. There were a lot who figured their position to be too exposed. It would seem to them that Lake City was a bridge too far. Holly describes what Jones had wrote. He fairly presents the differences between Generals Gilmore and Seymour. At Baldwin, a night or two before the battle, General Seymour called together six or eight of his officers for consultation. Some were cautious, others were outspoken, but it was decidedly the general opinion that it would be impossible to hold permanently a position out toward the center of the state, having for its line of communication a rickety railroad with one engine running 50 or 60 miles back to the base at Jacksonville. It would take more than our whole little army simply to hold the line against the force that would certainly soon be collected against us. The Confederates could have ruined us by letting us march one more day without interruption and then setting it down on the railroad between us and home with their rapidly increasing force. Most of us thought it would be sufficient to attempt to take the St. John's River, our main western line, but Seymour thought it his duty to go on. 
He was and is a brave and honorable patriot and soldier. So here we go. We have kind of this directive from Lincoln, right? And Seymour wants to accomplish that. However, we've mentioned before how armies, they need a lot of personnel to protect supply lines, especially these Union armies as they get into hostile territory. And of course, we've also mentioned before how the Confederacy lacks sufficient railroads. So if that is what you are trying to supply with, you're probably better off using a river. So the St. John's River might have been a better option for them. And that's kind of the point that Holly is getting at here. So Seymour would advance his command along the railroad in the direction of Lake City, despite the misgivings. Finnegan had Colquitt set up on a defensive line near Ocean Pond or Lucy Station, hence both these names are used for the battle. In the afternoon, the Federals would make contact with their enemy, but Seymour was convinced he was not seeing real Confederate troops, but rather inferior Confederate militia, so he would not deploy his entire command. The Confederates were trying to lure the enemy into a position where they could get behind their entrenchments, but instead they were caught in the open field. The Southerners were also confused as to who they were engaging. Jones will go on to describe the action with Colquitt taking the lead. The Colonel of the 64th Georgia, a new regiment, never before in action, supposing the only mounted troops were advancing against him, had formed square to resist cavalry. Colquitt arrived just in time to save the square from being ripped open by the enemy's artillery. He threw forward skirmishers and quickly formed a line of battle under a brisk fire, the 19th George on the right, the 28th on the left, with the section of Gamble's battery in the center. The 64th and the two companies of the 32nd Georgia were formed on the left of the 28th. The 6th Georgia was thrown still farther to the left to check any movement by that flank. The cavalry was divided and thrown to the two flanks. In this order, the line advanced, the enemy yielding slightly but stubbornly, contesting the ground. Finding the enemy in force in his front, Colquitt called for reinforcements, but General Finnegan had anticipated him, and Colonel Harrison was at hand with his brigade. The 6th Florida Battalion was put in line on the right of the 19th Georgia and the 23rd on the left of the 64th Georgia. Colonel Harrison, with his own regiments, the 32nd Georgia and 1st Georgia regulars, took position between the 23rd and 64th Georgia, and by Colquitt's order, assumed direction of affairs on the left of the line. Instead, therefore, of attacking the Confederates in a selective position strengthened by fieldworks, as the Union officers supposed, the battle was joined about 3 o'clock p.m. on level ground covered with open pine forest, offering no advantage of position to either. So, this is pretty wild. We have in this account, there's a forming of square. That's really something you don't really see a whole lot. We've pointed out some very brief instances where this occurs, but square is something that you're going to see in Napoleonic battlefields a lot to repel cavalry. And really it has its roots back into Scotland and defending against mounted, heavily mounted, I should say, knights with armor, right? So when you have weapons that can you'll break your bones and they have a lot of range on them as well. Square is just going to cease to be a tactic that is used in the civil war. There are those who cite that Finnegan really was not the true victor of the battle, but rather it was Colquitt. Finnegan did hustle in reinforcements at the right time though, which was key. It's also key because he knows that Colquitt is the veteran leader here. So he's kind of deferring to him and he's just in the right spot to make sure that he can get him the support that he needs. So in some ways, 
that's a, actually the mark of a pretty good battlefield commander, knowing your limitations and then relying on those who have the superior knowledge. Some of the Union regiments had Spencer repeaters, so that would have added to the weight they could throw. Both sides would see heavy action for the small amount of troops engaged. Holly will describe the action from the Union perspective. Suddenly, the 7th New Hampshire, moving in column of companies, saw the solid gray line about 250 yards ahead. A heavy fire was opened on us. Colonel Abbott misunderstood my order of deployment. I undertook to correct the error. And the regiment broke. Here, General Jones is in error. They reformed and did excellent service on our right flank, and later rejoined the 7th Connecticut in the center. They lost in all 209, there were never braver men. In the meantime, Colonel Fribley's black men met the enemy at short range. They had reported to me only two or three days before. I was afterward told that they had never had a day's practice in loading and firing. Old troops, finding themselves so greatly overmatched, would have run a little and reformed, with or without orders. The black men stood to be killed or wounded, losing more than 300 out of 550, General Jones is again in error, they fell back and reorganized. Colonel Fribley's monument shows where he fell. The Confederates were able to flank the Union line around and near Ocean Pond, and then hit them with enfilading fire. There would be an effort to try to catch the Union rear guard, but it would be repulsed by Montgomery's command. Jones writes about how there was a grand charge of the Confederates that finally drove them away, but we know this was not really the case. Union and Confederates alike were running low on ammunition. It's also interesting from Holly's perspective here as well, we just wanted to point this out too, in that he does point out how there are United States colored troops here that do good service. And this is another one of those battles that I don't think we necessarily think of or chalk up with others that really show the fighting qualities of the soldiers who are black who serve in the United States Army. So this is another instance of them putting in good service. And, you know, we talk about, say, Fort Wagner, right? We talk about how, you know, Vicksburg and Milliken's Bend, say, and Port Hudson, and those being the really the first battles, and those obviously those are 1863. But here, even early in 1864, we have another great example of a situation that could have turned into a route and we mentioned how Sam Jones thinks there's a grand charge at the end, and there, there really is not. However, certainly there could have been an exploitation of the Union Army retreating had there not been as much in terms of losing of ammunition, right? Had there not been a good stand on the part of some of these troops, that might have been exploited. And then Truman's expedition here, which ends in defeat here, as, as we can kind of see, would have been more of a disaster than it really was. The battle would end with 1,861 total Union casualties compared to 946 Confederate, so pretty substantial losses, which just speaks to the sharp fighting that was going on. This was a big morale boost and obviously helped in protecting the vital lifeline the Florida cattle regions had with the rest of the South. I think this also kind of highlights just how the election is really throwing things into the forefront for Lincoln, right? 
We are going to talk about the Red River campaign and how that's going to end in defeat for the North and how that's really not properly supported, right? It doesn't really also fit into the overall plan that Grant has, and he's going to come up with a better strategy, obviously, but there is these instances of like, you know, it'd be great if you could take your 5,000 men and essentially subjugate the state of Florida and you know, with Florida being sparsely populated as it was at the time, and certainly there weren't a whole lot of Confederate forces in Florida either, this could seem like a real possibility. However, as we have highlighted, there are a lot of logistical issues that are going to go into that. And, you know, if Seymour wins the Battle of Alusti and then gets to Lake City and kind of controls the railroad from there, is he going to be able to hold it? Is he going to get any support? Is he eventually going to have to retreat? You know, maybe he just burns and tears up some railroad and then retreats. Maybe that is the ultimate into this campaign so it's really hard to tell the 54th massachusetts would be involved in pulling a train that had broken down full of union wounded just adding to their good service the federals in general would have to rethink any additional offensives in that region now i know we talked about glory a while back and you know i've been kind of talking a good amount freestyle here in this episode but I do also want to throw that out that, you know, they, their service doesn't end after Fort Wagner. That movie makes it seem like, you know, they, they, and they did suffer some pretty heavy casualties. That was their really big engagement that they get thrown into. However, I think it would have been nice to also have a postscript of their service here. You know, obviously they do a really good job. They, they get thrown into action here. They do good service. By this point, obviously they're a real veteran regiment after having served elsewhere and they do a good job. And James Montgomery is still the commander. You kind of think that he sort of goes away, but he kind of comes back. Um, so at the very least, a postscript would have been nice. Or maybe even if you had kind of included that at the end of the movie. Like, I'm not going to say that Braveheart is a very historically accurate movie, because quite frankly, it really is not. However, the part that I do kind of like about that movie is that at the very end, you kind of get into the whole Bannockburn part. Now, there wasn't a huge charge by the Scots at Bannockburn. That's not how they won that battle. I hate to break that to you, but it does kind of have like, this is the main story, right? William Wallace. And then William Wallace is obviously executed. And then here at the end, we have a very, just a very brief scene of how they're going to redeem themselves and win. So wouldn't it have been nice if you had some, one of those other characters that, you know, is not obviously not Denzel Washington or Matthew Broderick, and they're doing good service here at Elusti and, kind of redeeming in a way, right? They didn't really need to be redeemed after their assault at Fort Wagner, but you get the point, right? Kind of like you're ending on just a different note. However, I see how they and why they ended the movie the way they did. So just a thought that I had. So we're going to go ahead and call it there for a day. We talked about Dalton, Georgia, which was Thomas's probe against a maybe weakened enemy. We read an account from the Dalton Winter encampments. The Battle of Alusti has been fought, which is an interesting engagement you probably have not heard of. Next week, we're going to get into some cavalry action. We have not only some raids in Virginia, but also have Forrest doing what he does best, charging the enemy at Oklahoma. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, as well as Patreon and Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show, 
be greatly appreciated. Once again, feedback is welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week.